Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 133. What if you didn't have to worry about managing user passwords as a Python developer? That's where the WebAuthn protocol and new hardware standards are heading. This week on the show, Dan Moore from FusionAuth returns to discuss a passwordless future. WebAuthn is a way to authenticate users using biometric secure authentication methods. Dan dives into pass keys, ceremonies, authenticators, and hardware standards. We also cover several projects and libraries that could help you get started with WebAuthn in Python. This episode is brought to you by CData Software, the easiest way to connect Python with data, SQL access to more than 250 cloud applications and data sources. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Dan, welcome back to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, so we were talking back in episode 99, we were kind of diving into OAuth and sort of setting that up and maybe some potential Python solutions there. And you recently reached out to me after, I guess, and you had just written this article about WebAuthn. Is that how it's pronounced? <laughs> yeah, I, I pronounce it WebAuthn for sure. Good, yeah, because there's lots of uh, acronyms and stuff we'll be diving into today. And I know it's not the most deepest Python this kind of like subject, but I am fascinated by this technology and I want to know more about it. And I think anybody who develops stuff on the web, I really see this affecting them and hopefully getting us beyond a, a password sort of future here, <laughs> because I, I know that, that that's been the dream for a while. And so I'm very excited to talk about it. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely, I mean, like you said, the core of WebAuthn is really built into browsers and, and the JavaScript API, but anybody who builds web applications or websites where people log in should have this on their radar because the long and short of it, is it, it makes it easy to leverage strong forms of authentication like, like biometrics or things that are built into your phone, fingerprint readers, etc., into a web application without you having to do the heavy integration lifting. So that's why I'm really excited about it. Yeah, I think that's really cool. And it attacks the problem from a slightly different angle. And we're going to provide a lot of resources. And your, your article was really great. It was uh, WebAuthn explained on your uh, FusionAuth blog. Is it just FusionAuth developer? <laughs> Expert advice for developers sort of series there. Mm -hmm. So we're going to have lots of little acronyms we're going to kind of work through, um, talk about maybe some differences there. What I want to start with first is I had heard about, I think it was called the FIDO Alliance, and then heard more about WebAuthn after that. Maybe you could describe the difference between those two to get some people up to speed as to what's happening there. Sure, yeah. So the FIDO Alliance started in the early 2010s, and I think PayPal was a member and some other folks, and FIDO stands for Fast Identity Online. And so they were a group of companies that really realized that we needed to have better ways to authenticate quickly. 
mostly because they wanted users to have a better experience and a more secure experience. And they came out with a couple of standards. And one thing that may be familiar to some of your users or some of your, ugh, sorry, not you don't have users, you have listeners. Some of your listeners <laughs> yeah. is, are YubiKeys. Yeah, I was thinking about that. Yep, yep. And so in the mid-2010s, the FIDO folks got together with the folks at the W3C, I want to say 2016, 2017, and came up with like a second version of this passwordless system. And this one leverages some of the work they've previously done. And then also is, there's a portion of it that's built into the browser. So you can imagine there's like a, a pipeline between the end user that some kind of authentication device, right? Like a YubiKey or, or Face ID or phone or something like that. And then the browser and then a, a website. And so okay. WebAuth then handles the interactions between the browser and the website. And then there's a second protocol called CTAP, which handles communication between the browser and the authenticator is what it's called, which is the thing that actually does the actual authentication that does um, secrets management and some other things that's kind of the secret sauce behind why WebAuthn is like passwordless and secure. Yeah. And it's worth noting that CTAP can be actually used by not just a browser, but it could be like a desktop application or something like that. Okay. And we were talking about like Apple TVs and stuff before too, and some of these other like, I don't know, third devices in the home. Could it be used for something like that too? I think those third devices are probably if they're if they're actual real applications, then yes. If they're okay. web applications, then they're probably going to be using WebAuthn. Okay, maybe we could describe what a YubiKey is. And the other question I have about that is like, how many of them are probably even out there? Like, how many did uh, what was it a popular device for people to buy? There was a a recent ac- action that happened in the Python space where the Python Packaging Authority took the top 1% of all packaging projects that are most downloaded and offered every one of those projects uh, one of the keys. Mm-hmm. Or they could, you know, if they chose not to, they could still use some other form of two-factor, you know, multi-factor authentication. Sure. But they really wanted to make sure all those projects at least had that going. And so I was just intrigued by like, okay, well, I think that was like maybe a thousand or something like that, but is it something that's huge in the corporate world? And Yeah, so I don't have a great grasp on that, right? Okay. I, I definitely know YubiKeys are, are totally aimed. There are consumers who have YubiKeys, but I think they're mostly sure. the sysadmin folks who are kind of really serious about security anyway. What WebAuthn opens up is, is the and, and one of the reasons why WebAuthn is exciting is that all the browsers on all the operating systems support it. So there's things that are integrated in with the, the operating system, like Android fingerprint, Face ID, Touch ID, Windows Hello, and those all leverage the same, are accessible via the same WebAuthn APIs. So a lot more hardware. Yeah, exactly. And if you're looking at like consumer, you know, logins for consumers, asking someone to buy a YubiKey is, is kind of a lift because I think they're tens of dollars, right? They're not super expensive, but they're... Yeah, I was just, I went to look on Amazon because I found like a link yeah. and it was like maybe 50 to $60 depending on yeah. the type of connector, you know, like USB-A or C or what have you. And and I would totally spend 
or, or my, I would definitely let my employer spend 60 bucks on me. Right. But like, yeah, sure. if you ask me to log into like, <laughs> you know, all my personal accounts, uh, it's going to be a big lift, but yeah. certainly it's, uh, you know, I already have my phone, right. Mo- and right. many people do, or I already have my computers. So that's really where I think web then is, uh, and, and kind of the, the surrounding ecosystem is a step above what FIDO was doing in the early 2010s, because you just have way more hardware available for people to use. Yeah. I would, I mean, it's many, many generations now. I think it was with the iPhone 5S or something like that. It started Touch ID. Yeah. Something like that. So that's a lot of generations ago. I looked up for a talk and I think it was 2013. It was first. Okay. Touch ID was first made available. And the first, a little bit of trivia for you all. Um, the first phone with a built-in fingerprint reader was actually the Motorola Altrix in 2011. So it's been around, oh, wow. okay. you know, and, and 11 yeah. years is a long time in, in digital terms, for sure. Right. You know, and then the, there's the whole, you know, Android ecosystem and uh, almost all of those have some sort of either facial recognition or uh, fingerprint also. So, yep. you know, a lot of phones out there. So I would imagine that that would be probably the most common hardware kind of coming in. Yes. Is there something special that you need to download or set up on your phone to to do this? Or is it something that when you go to a particular website, it will, through the authentication system, like trigger uh, sort of a lookup uh, on your phone? Like, how's that work? So, so there's a couple of things. First is you obviously need to enable fingerprint recognition or, or whatever on your phone or your device. Yeah. If that's not enabled, then WebAuthn is not going to magically be able to enable it for you. Um, <laughs> right. But got to turn it on. <laughs> so, so WebAuthn works with kind of public-private keys, and the private keys are held on the device, the phone, or the UV key or whatnot, and then the public keys are what the website gets. And there's, there's some more kind of nuts and bolts there, but at the end of the day, that's really the fundamental exchange. And so WebAuthn has these things called ceremonies, but you call them flows as well. And you need to, as a user, be able to basically get that public key up to the website and, and associate with your account somehow. And there's a couple of different ways to do that. One common way is you have someone log in with a normal username and password or SSO using Google or something like that. And then they can associate a public key with their account. And then they can use that WebAuthn workflow or the passkey workflow is another way that I've heard it put for all future authentications if they want. Okay. So it's like a sort of a setup initial process, create your username. Yep. It's called a registration flow. Yep. Okay. And then when you said SSO, single sign-on, we'll, we'll talk about the risks of some of these uh, existing sort of standards as we go, but that that would be like, you know, sign-on with Google or GitHub mm-hmm. or some other yep. thing where, a, if you will, a third party that has, I don't know, maybe a larger <laughs> set of uh, accounts in your life that it kind of makes sense. Well, I'll just have a single sign-on for, for all of those. And that was like one of the solutions that's been out there for a while for trying to remember lots of passwords. Yes, you basically delegate that because I don't know about you, Christopher, but like <laughs> I pay a lot more attention to like my Gmail account than I do to J random site. Yeah, yeah, right? definitely. Like I I have MFA enabled for it, and I like yeah. So that's that's the premise behind single sign or social sign on. But um, yeah. So there are ways you can set up WebAuthn so that you don't have to have that initial account creation. They're just 
a little more limited in terms of the way the hardware works. And we're, you know, my experience is definitely more focused on the reauthentication flow right now, because at the end of the day, it really is about reducing user um, friction. Yeah. And uh, authentication is a, is a big friction point in my life. CData software. Connect, integrate, and automate your data from Python or any other application or tool. At CData, they simplify connectivity between all of the applications and data sources that power business, making it easier to unlock the value of data. Their SQL-based connectors streamline data access, making it easy to access real-time data from on-premise or cloud databases, SaaS, APIs, NoSQL, and big data. Check out cdata.com. That's cdata.com to learn more. Maybe we could dive into that a little bit further. Like the idea of a, a public key and a private key is a kind of a similar behavior that if anyone has explored like HTTPS and sort of that workflow. Um, in fact, you in your article use the same kind of people in there, the Alice and Bob <laughs> example, which I think is like sort of like a textbook example of people. Um, but now we're kind of doing it with this sort of other form of authentication. But the idea of like you sending this public key out and then only you are able to create something that is privately signed. And it's, I guess, very hard to tamper with because it won't look like you anymore. And so that whole, like you mentioned it as a, I've, I've heard it called a challenge. You you called it a, what was the term that you used that where it's sort of prompting the person for the private key signature? I don't recall what I said. I'm sorry. Um, you know, it's, it's the same with like, well, you have to sort of prove that you as, you know, the username that, that please sign this challenge with your private key oh, and here's the yeah. signature. Uh, the piece, uh, maybe the piece of hardware I was talking about is called an authenticator. Yeah, okay. Um, so that's kind of a generic term for anything that holds the private keys and can 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 verify who the user is. And then right. can there's sort of the ceremony signature. of it or whatever. Yep, yep. Okay. Yep. And so... What I thought of is a bit of an analogy. I don't know if it works perfectly, but you've given out your username, this sort of public key. And I was kind of thinking about like, okay, like maybe it's, you've given some sort of tool that can read invisible ink, but you have a personal recipe for creating invisible ink mm. <laughs> and, and signing something in it. And only you can write it in that way. And it can only be viewed with that particular, you know, that public, view it would it would not show up the same it'd be easy to kind of tell that somebody's sort of tampered with it or tried to create it in a different way it's like having your own unique way of looking at it i don't know if it works that well but (laughs) i I, I love that no it's almost like yeah you're right like like i've given the entire world a flashlight that can read my invisible ink only yeah right and so i can write in that invisible ink and if someone else tries to write with a different kind of visible ink that flashlight won't show them the mess won't show anybody who holds it the message or it's going to be easy to tell it's been tampered with, right? So Yeah. Yeah. I, what I was wondering about, one of the things I thought was kind of interesting is that you have a chart <laughs> mentioning sort of the browser support and kind of where things are. And I was looking at the list of all the different, you know, authentication API, API sort of stuff. And 
I was wondering, do you think Internet Explorer was holding this back <laughs> in some ways? <laughs> well, and, and that chart, it, credit where credit's due, that's from caniuse.com, which is just an amazing website if you want to know oh, okay. about specifics. Um, if you just search for can I use WebAuthn, I think they're like the number one result. I think that IE just probably decided, probably the Microsoft team just decided that they were all in on edge and it wasn't worth doing that update. So yeah, yeah, that's my guess. But I don't have any inside information. Yeah. So one of the things that this helps with and why it should be interesting to a developer is the idea that you are really no longer holding on to passwords and you know, the whole ritual of potentially, you know, you get a password and then, okay, am I going to save this password in my system? Hence why people prefer in some ways to maybe use single sign-on on their site. So it's like, okay, well, the third party can authenticate and I, I don't have to like collect all that information. Mm-hmm. But also just the whole process of making sure that you're properly hashing or salting. And even then, that information can get attacked or taken from the site. And we Mm -hmm. hear about those sort of breaches all the time. And in this case, there's really not any kind of secret that's saved there, right? Yeah. There's the public key, right? Which by definition is something that no one cares if... if Right, it's a username, if you will, right? Yeah, I mean, you'd think of it as as a username, because it does kind of, there, there might be some metadata attached to it as well. But yes, it is, it is nothing that will actually help you complete a WebAuthn workflow, or is useful in any other way. So, so without any server side secrets, there, it kind of makes it really not a, an attack vector that would be interesting anymore. Yeah, and, and the WebAuthn folks actually have introduced some other things too. They've, you know, because they're they came out. Later, they it doesn't work at all over HTTP. You just can't use WebAuthn over HTTP. It just won't work. <laughs> um, right. And every every kind of that registration ceremony that we talked about that yeah. happens for the website to get the get the uh, credential or the the public key that is bound to a domain name. Hmm. And if you make a request, but you kind of pass in a different domain name from where you're serving from, WebAuthn again says, hey, no, no dice. Yeah. So there's like this more strong kind of tying to the domain name system, which makes it harder for attackers to try to get access to those credentials or that even that signed payload that proves someone is who they are without somehow getting into your website. So that like a like a phishing attack would be less like it would be much harder to do or maybe not even possible. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how your website's configured and how you ask for things because you can ask for not just a specific example yeah. .com domain, but you could ask for, get, you know, let anybody underneath example.com, you know, do the web then. But yeah, if you architect things correctly, it becomes harder. And the other point about phishing, I'm glad you brought that up, is that lots of times, and we saw this with, uh, I think, the Okta attack and some other attacks that have happened recently, 
people get fished for their second factor of authentication. Right. Right. Uh, someone says, you know, they, they get a text message and, or maybe a hundred text messages or a hundred push notifications. And eventually they say yes. Uh, or, yeah. or someone calls and says, Hey, what's that code? You can do that with code based MFA, but with what about then you can't actually hand over the, the signature, right? It's, it's tied in, it's bound to that device. Yeah. So it, it helps with phishing in both, both ways. Yeah. I've, <laughs> so I have like, I don't really use it much, but I have an Instagram account that I created and it's a single word and it's, you know, it's a dictionary word and I don't use it. And it's got like three posts or something like on it. And I constantly get the emails of somebody saying, <laughs> Yeah. It seems like you're having trouble getting into your account, you know, da da da. And I never did the part of like, you know, set up an SMS type of thing, which I'm kind of glad because it probably would be gone by now. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, at this point, like if somebody would have probably taken it because that seems easier to hack in my this is an opinion, you know, than, you know, especially for somebody who's like trying to get that elite single word login or something like that for like Instagram or something like that. But it just kind of, it baffles me. But, um, you know, there's like all those kinds of things where you can sort of spoof SMS or they call right. them uh, your SIMs or whatever. Right, right. So I have two questions there. The first is, is is the single word Python? I have to, I have to ask that question. <laughs> no, uh, no. <laughs> and, and the second is more of a comment. Like, I think SMS is way, way, um, is, is definitely spoofable. The attacks I've heard of often depend on them knowing your phone number and them calling up the mobile phone operator and the customer right. service people switching things around. I heard of several attacks like that. Was, I mean, it's, I, you know, I hope I'm never <laughs> on the side of that type of thing. But yeah, it's pretty, pretty wild to think about. And I've definitely moved to the other types of, you know, multi-factor type of authentication systems like uh, you know, Google Authenticator or Authy, I think. So I have, yeah, yeah, those times. It's always a challenge when you get a new phone. <laughs> yeah, got to move everything over. Which, how would this deal with that? Like, what happens if you get new hardware? Yeah, so the the thing about WebAuthn is, unless you're using something, so there are some kind of vendor specific ways around this, but okay. for the the straight up standard you have to register each new device. So what you would do is, you know, you'd go through that same registration process and then depending on how the website is implemented things, they may offer you like a choice. Hey, I see you have three WebAuthn accounts or public keys associated with your account. Which one do you want to log in with? Okay. Yeah. So like I know in the Apple world, they are trying to do it through iCloud and they have like mm -hmm. their term, I think is a pass key. That they're kind of using so like if you're on your if you're in the Apple ecosystem, and I'm sorry, I used to work for Apple, so I'm a bit of an Apple nerd. So I have a lot of their stuff. Um, plus I bought a lot of music equipment and stuff that only works on it. So sure. <laughs> and I actually was kind of checking out, like I have one of the developer accounts and they had a, a WWDC talk on it um that was in 2021. And it's, I won't share the link because you can't log into it, but it's basically the title of it was Move Beyond Passwords. And it was a pretty good explanation, kind of diving into this a little bit more. Mm -hmm. I think it might be a good, you know, one if you 
move, you know, go through your article and kind of catch up what some of the stuff's happening. And then you can kind of see like how a, a hardware provider is kind of looking at how to do this and set up their developers for it. And yeah. they show a little bit of code at the end. So, yeah. And I think uh, there is like WebAuthn is still under development or not under development. It's been released. I think it was released in 2019, finalized, but now they're working on the next version. Okay which I think will try to solve that problem. So they're working with Apple and Google who have these solutions that, you know, frankly, private keys should never leave devices. That's one of the premises of WebAuthn. Right. But then the cost is you have to register all these new devices. And if you lose a device and you don't have any other device registered for that account, you're, ho- you're hosed, I think is the technical term. Right. It's like dropping your YubiKey somewhere or something. Totally. Yeah. So I think they're working on like, you know, secure storage in the cloud of that private key, which obviously they can encrypt and and ship over TLS and do some other things with. But um, I do know that there are proprietary solutions right now, and I think that the WebAuthn working group is working on ways to standardize that and try to solve that user interface issue. So maybe we could talk about where ways that you're, or where are places that you're seeing this being used? Like what are sites or places that are actively using it like is this something that you can choose like if you already have a YubiKey or whatever that you could have like selected a particular site to to do this on like i guess i haven't started to use it yet and so i'm like okay well where do i where does this look different for me if i've decided to move into it as a as a user and then we could talk about as a developer maybe after that sure yeah yeah so and i i definitely know that it's used the only the only consumer-facing site that I've seen it on is Best Buy, okay, which makes sense, kind of knowing their their target market. I definitely have read about people using it as another factor of authentication for, you know, their GitHub account or Azure AD. Okay, I think it's it's that point where if Best Buy is implementing it, I think there's some momentum behind it. I think there's going to be more and more sites out there building this in. Yeah, the big one I think of is Amazon. Yeah. Um, just like the marketplace of it. <laughs> so Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes me think about something too, then is like my wife is the one who has an account for Amazon. Mm-hmm. Um, like she's the prime, <laughs> you know, it's like sort <laughs> same, of the family member. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so um she I you know, I have to sort of log in as her. And then it prompts like her phone, you know, <laughs> to, to prompt for a code or whatever. Mm-hmm. I wonder how that would be handled like with families. Is that something they would have to think about with like multiple hardware then uh, as far as like an account that's somewhat like that, that might be shared? I mean, the way I'd approach it is is the same as like if I want to have WebAuthn work with my Mac and my Android device, I register both devices oh, okay. under the so same account. Have to go and in the sort of setup process that we were talking about before there'd be like additional like things that you're registering as. Yep. And you, so, yeah, so you'd have your phone and she'd have her phone. And I, I, if I were Amazon and I was doing this, I would definitely, anyone who only had one device, I would, I would (laughs) send them emails and nag (laughs) them to to add more because again, you just don't want to have someone drop their phone. Yeah. It's literally like, you know, getting all credit cards. (laughs) (laughs) For sure. Okay. All right. So that it's sort of rolling out, and I guess it's sort of a chicken and egg. You need the hardware all set up and ready to to go and be part of the operating systems and stuff like that. And at the same time, then you know the websites need to figure out how they're going to implement it and start setting that up. I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, I, and, and actually, I just thought of another. I think Intuit was using it as well. So there are a couple of. Okay, that would be really handy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I think it's not a chicken and egg problem because the to use your analogy, like the chickens are already taken care of, right? Like, okay. the, for whatever reason, probably because they want to make our lives more secure. Right. All the browser vendors and all the uh, OS vendors have built this in. So now it's a real question of the, the, your audience, the web developers, you know, stepping up and actually implementing this on their web applications so that users can get the benefits of it. And, I won't speak too much about the benefits of it um, from a user perspective, but I know the first time I did it, it really does seem like magic because it is, you basically click on a button saying, hey, you know, this is my username essentially. And then you get a prompt that comes up and you, and you hold your fingerprint over it and boom, you're logged in. Nice. And for someone who's used to just continue, you know, I have a password manager, yeah. you know, continually <laughs> cutting, cutting, pa- copying, pasting from my password manager. It was just amazingly frictionless. Yeah. I'm, I have two, <laughs> I'm not proud of the fact that I have two password managers, but I, you know, I have, uh, I got a new laptop this year. And so I kind of started to go all in on the, Touch ID and the mm. I don't know it's called the iCloud keychain what have you, um, and so it does sort of maybe it's a similar flow where it prompts me use your fingerprint now mm-hmm. to uh, basically prompt me to put in the password and you know na- username and password and that actually works pretty well. Is is that for web applications or is that for like internal stuff like your ID or just logging on to your Mac? Well, it's to log onto my Mac and wake it up from sleep. Mm-hmm. But then also, uh, I, you know, since it stores all all my passwords in that iCloud keychain, or a large percentage of them, I should say, mm-hmm. um, it's the same thing. Like you know, I'm logging into a credit card or I'm logging into uh, other services and things like that. Nice. And it just it, it actually works pretty well. But I also have one password, and that's partly a work thing. Mm. And Honestly, it's kind of clunky, <laughs> and I, I end up copying pasting out of it because, like, the way it would prompt, it would fight with the other one, sure. and I'm like, ah. Oh. Sure. And so it was like kind of like having to go back and forth between the browsers and things like that. And and I know a lot of people probably do the same thing of like you're in a browser and you have it maybe remember passwords inside the browser, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. like you know maybe you do certain things in Firefox or. Uh, you know, Brave or some other kind of browser, and you say, well, this thing could save some of the passwords too. But that's still not completely secure in some ways. So the passwords are there. I don't know if there have been some hacks of password manager services like LastPass and things like that. I don't know of all of them, but... I thought I heard about that. I mean, I don't want to spread FUD, but I mean, certainly like... If I were an attacker, a centralized <laughs> repository of users' right. passwords and usernames would be very attractive to me. And yeah, that yeah. gets back to your point earlier, right? Like WebAuthn is decentralized. And so if WebAuthn, if LastPass was somehow holding all these public keys, no one cares. Yeah. So this week, I want to shine a spotlight on another real Python video course. It's another of this new type of video course we're having on RealPython. Instead of being based on one of our written tutorials, it's a conversation about code. For this conversation, 
It's about how to prepare your code so it's ready to share when looking for help or support from other programmers or a community. The course is titled Refactoring, Prepare Your Code to Get Help. And the instructors for this code conversation are RealPython authors Philip Axeny and previous guest Martin Broyce. They'll take you through how to write clear, concise questions using how or why, removing obstacles and visual clutter from your code, renaming variables and functions for clarity, exploring several techniques to improve your code by refactoring, and how to raise and catch exceptions within nested functions. Throughout this code conversation, you'll get insight from two RealPython team members. Whether you're looking for help from within the RealPython community or the larger Python community, I think this course will help you prepare your code for these conversations. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and where needed include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. Can we talk about the Python pieces? Yeah, yeah. Let's move into the stuck the developer side because I think that's that's really in the next step is like, okay, well, how do we set this up? And I think there probably are some different choices. And you know, being it kind of a new platform or new technology for developers. I was wondering like what level these things are at. And so I guess we'll, we'll kind of discuss them. So what do you got? Yeah. Yeah. So, so again, if you want to think about the whole like registration ceremony mm-hmm. or authentication ceremony, right, there's, there's this, there's kind of two distinct pieces. There's generating the options that you need for the particular authenticator to, to be recognized. And that's, done via just creating some options in JavaScript. And so I found a couple, or at least one library that that does that for you in Python. You basically build out what you want in Python in terms of, you know, uh, there aren't too many options, but like one is, do you want to support only authenticators that have built in, that are built into like a, a computer or a phone and those are called platform authenticators? Okay. Or do you want to support cross-platform authenticators where cross-platform means it's like a UV key that you can move between different de- different like computing devices. And so that is taken care of by uh, something called pi underscore web authn. But there's the other piece of like all that credential management, right? Like, you know, prompting the user and then saving off the public key and then knowing how, you know, how to attach it to the user. Yeah. And I found a, a framework for that that um, one worked with Flask and it was called PyWarp. And there was another one that I think works with Fast and Chalice, I want to say, and that was called WebAuthNRP. And again, for all your listeners, we'll have all these in the in the links. Yeah. I did look into Django because I know that's kind of one of the big web frameworks with, with Python. Yeah, and, we talk about it often, yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there were a couple alpha-level projects, and they basically were very clear that they said, hey, we're alpha-level. So I, I think right. they're probably looking for help, but uh, one's called Django WebAuth, and the other is called Django WebAuthIn okay. with, uh, with an I-N. Both those didn't seem like they were quite ready for prime time. Okay. So there's some movement there, and so people can kind of look at them. The trick here is, do you think that someone would probably be having to set up, you know, multiple like choices for authentication at the moment? I don't understand the question. I'm sorry. That's okay. Do you think that if you were going to create a Flask website and 
you were interested in setting up WebAuthn, do you think that at the current time that you might have to probably have additional choices also? Yes, I, I think you would. And I think that there's two main reasons for that. The first is that that registration flow that we talked about yeah. is much easier to conceptualize and much more widely supported if you have an existing account to hang hang that public key off of. Okay. And the second is the reset problem, right? Like what happens if I register with WebAuthn and, and I only have one device on there and then I uh, lose it? Well, if I have, um, you know, I can always call customer service and kind of try to convince them that I have access to that account or I should have access to that account. But, right. you know, we live in an automated world. And so if you can associate an email address with it or, um, you know, some other path or phone number, then you can build in those self-service auth re- reset flows, which... Yeah, it's <laughs> pretty common. ...are an attack vector, but also are such a convenience... <laughs> So right, yeah, that's always going to be a thing, right? You're going to need to have a way to to recover if something goes odd, because you know how much of your life is online, so much. you know, and yeah. So uh, I did, I did want to mention one other one other uh, kind of Python esque tool, which if you'll remember, there's the WebAuthn side, which is kind of um, website to browser, and then there's the CTAP two side, which is browser to uh, authenticator and they're all kind of called together called Fido. There's actually a tool called Python Fido 2 by the Yubico folks that okay. lets you kind of manipulate and access Fido stuff from the command line. So if you're a, um, you know, you need to generate some challenge or you're integrating with something that's not a website, you may want to look at that tool, that, that uh, library. Yeah. So yeah, if you're in, in that world of, you know, with the hardware keys. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, no, no, no. It, it should conceivably, I, I, again, I haven't played with this directly, but because it supports the FIDO standard, it should actually be able to work with Touch ID or any of those other things. Okay. And it's not just a YubiKey specific tool, I don't believe. Oh, nice. Yeah. I guess another potential way that someone could look at this is maybe through an authentication service. I, I know you work for Houston Auth and we can throw the name out there again, but is that something that in the world of services that do this, is that something that you guys have started to implement and, and some of your competitors and other people out there are in the process of getting set up for? Yeah, so I, uh, we are about to release WebAuthn support. Okay. And so it'll be as simple as like, clicking a toggle if you have an existing Fusion Auth instance. Um, I, will, I will note it's part of our paid license plan. And then I know there are some other competitors out there. You know, KeyCloak has a WebAuthn implementation. I'm trying to think of the others that are kind of prominent. Ori does, Stitch does. So there are a couple of competitors out there that are Auth0 does, although my understanding is that Auth0's is kind of hid, hidden behind a talk-to-sales uh, type of okay. process, but <laughs> yeah. um, okay. you know, I think that you absolutely could implement this yourself, and hopefully, some of the links to some of the libraries that that will will be in this podcast note will do that. Yeah, but you absolutely could also rely on an auth server too. Yeah, I was just thinking, just like you know, kind of a state of affairs kind of thing, like. The more this is out there, the more public awareness of it is and mm-hmm. more sites that are using it. And 
hopefully we can all move toward this <laughs> passwordless future. <laughs> yeah, and, and I would I would also say I, it's not just the passwords of the future that excites me. It's the standards based passwordless future because yeah. there's actually been passwordless solutions out there that have been proprietary right. for for a while longer. But this one, you know, it has just mass adoption, and I think you're right that. Um, the hope is that a lot more websites are going to start to offer this again, maybe not the only way to log in, but a safe, secure way to let people re-authenticate or add an additional factor of, of authentication to just increase the, the ease and the, and the, the user security for everyone. Yeah. So Dan, I have these weekly questions um, I'd like to ask you, and I know that you're not a regular Python developer at all times, but what is something that you're excited about in the world of Python May, that you've been hearing about? Yeah, so there's there's two things, actually, when I was looking around. The first is that PyCon uh, 2023, the U.S. one, yeah. <laughs> just, just opened their CFP. So, you know, I, I speak a lot at, at, at different conferences and stuff, and I'm definitely excited about the possibility of submitting to, to PyCon. Yeah, back at Salt Lake City again this year. Well, and I would encourage anybody to like, if you've thought about public speaking, it, it is, how do I put this politely? Um, you will never learn something so well as when you're preparing <laughs> to give a talk on it. So if you have, if you have something like, oh man. Yeah. Yeah. And especially in person, right? <laughs> oh gosh. You know, I'd love to learn more about WebAuthn. You should pitch a talk to PyCon 2023 about WebAuthn because I guarantee you, if you get accepted, you will suddenly become one of the smartest people in the room about WebAuthn because you'll put in that work. Yeah. And the other thing is, obviously, I love to see programming languages evolve, and I, I not, noticed that 3.11 yep. was released. So congratulations to the Python folks for continuing to push that forward. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. There's lots of fun changes and a lot of activity, a lot of development happening. It almost feels too fast sometimes. <laughs> so with a, a yearly release <laughs> yeah. cadence, it's kind of made it a little bit quicker and what's going on. So okay. what's something that you want to learn next? And again, this doesn't have to be programming or even Python specific. Sure. Um, I mean, one thing I want to learn is even in the short time, we've kind of been building out the WebAuthn stuff. I've seen a lot of interesting edge cases. And so I'm really looking forward to fusion Auth getting that released in the wild and, and being able to continually refine that because you know, standards are standards, but there's always edge cases. And then I'm trying to think if there's any fun. You know what? I and I know this is pretty um how do I put this? Uh trendy uh of me, but I really have enjoyed pickling some things. And uh, my wife got me a, a book about pickling things, and so I'm gonna be doing more of that, uh just kind of preserving preserving foods uh, yeah. i've dabbled <laughs> more in the uh as we call it quickle <laughs> quickle it's just like you know like kind of quick pickling different things yeah like i make uh kind of red onions mm. to be uh for like kind of like making fish tacos at home nice and um so i just it's like lime juice and maybe like a little bit of red vinegar and then mostly just thinly cut <laughs> in some salt and just put it in a mason jar, shake it up, and oh my God, they're so good. Awesome. So <laughs> Awesome. That's great. Yeah. What kind of things do you pickle? 
Um, I've done sauerkraut. I've done wow, kind of advanced cool, stuff. Uh, <laughs> a kimchi. I actually really, really love kimchi. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. And then I tried to pickle turnips the other day, and I'll let you how'd know that how that. Um, <laughs> okay. It didn't taste Can't as good as the sauerkraut. I'll, let's just leave it at that. But uh, it's yeah. it's kind of working at it right now. So nice. Yeah, maybe you yeah. can share the book name, and we'll we'll put it in the show notes too. Yeah, I definitely will. Well. Dan, thanks so much for coming on the show again. It's really fun to talk to you again. And thanks for sharing all this information about WebAuthn. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. And if I could leave your listeners with one piece of advice is go go sign up for Best Buy's WebAuthn account and just see how easy and fun it is and think about your users having that same experience on your website. Okay, awesome. And don't forget, see data software. Simple cloud data connectivity to SaaS, big data, and NoSQL. From Pandas, SQL Alchemy, Dash, and Pedal. Learn more at cdata.com. I want to thank Dan Moore for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to the RealPython podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that the RealPython podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Bailey, and I look forward to talking to you soon.